Well, thank you for being here this morning. It's a, it's a great day to be together as God's people, isn't it? So, um, I invite you to turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 4 uh, this morning as we uh, begin in this chapter at verse 28. Um, last time we, we started at verse 25. Uh, and we saw last time that beginning at verse 25 through verse 32, which concludes the chapter at least, uh, that Paul gives uh, 21 uh, distinct commands uh, to believers. Uh, and uh, these commands are, are given because they are expressing how the believer and the follower of Jesus Christ is to live uh, in relationship to others because they're Christians, because they're followers of Jesus. Uh, we, we saw last time that uh, as believing people, we are to speak truthfully. We are to be people who are known to be truth-tellers, uh, not just the truth, but truth as it relates to just life, that we tell the truth. Uh, secondly, uh, Paul highlights and spent some time uh, examining the fact that we uh, need to control our anger and anger is an emotional response to something that uh, displeases us for whatever reason that might be. And he suggests here in this passage, not suggests it, he commands it, that we, we time it so that we deal with those matters that cause us that kind of agitation by sundown, that we don't carry it over into another day and another day and another day, that it becomes a burden to us and a, a stumbling block. Uh, so we, we, we time it, we deal with it, uh, and we're mindful that if we're not careful, we can give the devil a foothold in our lives. Yeah, the devil is a real being, even though the, probably the unbelieving world would probably scoff at the idea of, of a personal being known as the devil or Satan. But we do have an adversary according to the scriptures, and his ultimate purpose is to destroy us and anything related to the things of God. And if we're not careful in our lives and don't deal with our emotions and bring them under the control of the Holy Spirit, uh, anger in particular, that can become a, a foothold in, by which Satan can get an entrance into our lives and just sort of trip us up everywhere else. Uh, and uh, so we are to be mindful of that because he can come to a place where he can influence and dominate even our thoughts and our actions if we're not mindful of that. Um, and, you know, as I, as I finished last week and... Uh, I, thought, I thought to myself, even as we're in this section that we call the practical section of Ephesians, you know, it's a real challenge, isn't it? If, if we're honest, uh, I mean, we say we want, we, want, we want practical teaching from the Word of God. Well, God says, you want practical things? Here's what I expect you to, to do to practice. And, and He's dealing with heart issues with us, you know? He, he's dealing with the in, in, inside of us and the way that we respond. And, and God's ultimate purpose in our lives, according to Romans chapter 8, is that you and I be conformed to the image of his son, that, that we, we reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in our, in our conduct, in our talk, in our actions, and even really even, even in, the, in our heart of hearts, the things that motivate us, that we would come to a place by his Spirit's work, by his sanctifying work, by his making us holy, that, that even in our motivations, we become Christ-like. Now, again, this process is never completed in this life. You know, 
If, if, you, if you hold and subscribe to a teaching that, that says that you can become perfect in this life, let me know when you've arrived, because I'd like to have a conversation with you. you know? However, we're, we're, to, we're on this spiritual journey, if you would, in this earthly life where God is, is transforming us to become like his son. And he, these commands become markers, if you would, to see how, how am I progressing in this Christian life? What does God still need to do in my life? You know, some of these things may not be as much of a problem for you as they are with someone else because we're all different. But we all have the same Holy Spirit whose ultimate goal and desire is to make us like Jesus in this earthly life. Um, and that becomes, I believe, a powerful witness to a skeptical world, you know. When they see authenticity in our lives, when they see a genuineness and a reality and something that they can't find or manufacture based on whatever this world might attempt to do, it's something that's distinct and sets us apart. And after all, aren't we called to be a distinct people as followers of Jesus? So notice uh, uh, with me in this context, and before I say that, uh, let me just say this. these, these things that the Lord says to us as, as believers are, are not automatic, and they're not easy. You know, uh, it's a process in our lives, but they are very much possible and real through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. When I read these things, I, I have to remind myself that, that not only does God expect this from me, as a follower of Jesus, but he actually enables me so that this becomes real in me. And this can be real in you and in me as followers of Jesus if we surrender ourselves and are obedient to him in the power of his spirit. Now, you'll notice here uh, uh, there, there are four, if you would, uh, topics that you can sort of put the rest of these commands, 6 through 21, in, in, under these headings. He talks about, number one, work. At verse 28, then in verse 29, he talks about our words. And then in verse 30, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 31 and 32, he kind of sums it up and says, all of these kind of uh, uh, things need to be sort of rid out of your lives, uh, removed out of your lives by the, 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 the work of God's Spirit in you uh, and through you. And it's interesting because this, this phrase came to my mind as I was looking over these notes and studying this week. And maybe you've heard a a phrase like this or similar to this, but God's commands are his enablements. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, which means this, that what God commands, he actually enables us to do. And there's an example of this. This was pointed out to me by somebody on the web who studied this when I Googled that phrase. But Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it's interesting. God spoke to Ezekiel the prophet and said, stand upon your feet. That was the command. And the next verse says, the Spirit set me upon my feet. Isn't that interesting? He commanded, stand up, and the Spirit enabled him to stand up. So what did he have to do? He had to stand up. You know, and the same thing with these commands that God has given us here and elsewhere in Scripture, that the, the command is given to show us and to reflect to us the character and nature of God, the nature of Christ, but also the enablement to carry it out in the power of His Spirit. So let's look together at these uh, beginning at verse uh, 28. Uh, and actually, I think I need to pray. We need to pray first, so let's pray. Father, in these few moments that we open your word together, we ask for your help through your spirit to understand what you are saying to us, 
but beyond understanding, Lord, and insight that you give us, we pray for the, the, the enablement of your spirit, the power of your spirit to carry out and to put into practice what you show us. And we know, Lord, that it's not in ourselves that we can do this, but it's through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may these things be reflected in our lives that we in turn might reflect Jesus Christ, who said, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify the Father who is in heaven. May you make it so in me and in those who take to heart the message of your word. And we'll give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's begin here at verse 28 as we pick up here. This is the sixth command that he gave. And he says, note this, he who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share uh, with those uh, in need. Now, that might seem like one big command, but I've sort of taken these as, 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 as they're, they're parsed out as each a separate command. And notice this, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. See, the old man says, take it. You're entitled to take it. Even if it's not yours, take it. You take it to satisfy yourself. That, that is uh, stealing. Uh, that is taking something that is not uh, rightfully yours but belongs to another. And we know, of course, in the Ten Commandments, one of them is what? Thou shalt not. Only two of you know the answer to that one? Boy, you better go back and read those. It's been a while, maybe. Thou shalt not steal. And that's taking something that is not rightfully yours. And he says, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, stop stealing. And stealing is not always just actually taking a physical item. Stealing can be, you know, stealing from your employer his time that he's paying you for. You know, or or maybe, maybe using a service or something that you haven't paid for but you're going to just take advantage of it. Well, I'll just do it at work, and nobody will know the difference. You know? uh, that, that is, that is say, taking something that is not rightfully uh, yours. And so he says to those, if that has been your propensity, that, that you take things that don't belong to you, stop. You've been transformed. You've been changed as you came to Christ. So the command is, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. Stop being a thief. But he doesn't leave it there with just the negative. Stop doing the negative, leaving a void. He now says, here's the positive. Here's what you are to take up. And notice the command. Notice this. Must stop stealing, but must work. Work. If you want something, one of the ways of acquiring it is working for it. You know? And it's funny because it seems like in our present world and in some conversations, it's almost like work is a bad word. But did you know that work is God-ordained? It actually started in Genesis 2 and verse 15 where God put Adam and Eve in the garden and commanded them to keep the garden and care for it and to maintain it. That was their occupation. They were gardeners. God said, I want you to take care of my garden and take care of my earth, you know? And did you know that was prior to the fall? So work is not a, a curse, but work has become cursed as a result of sin. 
Because when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the things God said was, no longer will the earth produce its strength, but now it's going to produce thorns as well. And when sin entered the world, sin affected everything in the universe and everything in our lives. So work became then a burden where now you have to work by the sweat of your face. It becomes toilsome and laborsome. However, work is, an, is, is a God-ordained task that, that he gives us. Um, I find it interesting that uh, he's going to explain what he means, at least in a little bit more detail, what work means. But it, you can jot this down, Second Thessalonians 3.10. Paul gave the command to believers that if a person will not work, he shall not eat. Now, I didn't say if you can't work, because some people can't work because of physical limitations or whatever they might be, but if they refuse to work when they have the capacity for work and the ability to work and they refuse to, maybe they shouldn't have a meal either. You know? That's kind of an interesting principle and command to consider in light of that. So he says you must work. So God has given us work. And we're going to see more about that when we get into chapter 6 uh, when we talk about employers and employees. So we'll hold off on, on more specifics with that. So keep that in mind and tuck it away, and we'll, we'll unwrap it again later uh, as we get into chapter 6. But notice this. In this context, he says you must work doing something useful with his own hands. Doing something useful. Which, which would suggest to you and me something that's productive, something that's, that's, that's meaningful in work. Um, uh, I, I, I see in that when he says something useful with his own hands, that that also has with it the, the personalization of your work, that somehow you bring your own creativity that God has deposited within you to what you do. You know, I find that kind of interesting, do you not? You're doing something with your own hands, something that you have produced, uh, something that you have made, something that you yourself have, have engaged yourself in and, and made come to pass, um, something that you did with your own hands. Um, do you ever, do you ever uh, have a project even at home, talking about work, you know, that uh, you, know, you, need to, you need to say, for example, you know, clean out a closet that's sort of become the catch-all thing. And you, so you dread doing it, but you know what? It needs to be done. So you pull everything out of the closet, and you go through that, and you organize it. And isn't there a sense of satisfaction when it's done, that it's finished? And did you know that when God created all things, it says on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And part of that rest was he took satisfaction in something that was finished, that it was done. And God gives us work, and he wants us to use our hands, which I would suggest to you has with it, you bring your own personal element into it, your own personality, sanctified and enabled by the Spirit of God, that it brings a creativity to what you do. You know? He must work doing something useful with his hands. This phrase came to my mind, and I didn't know a lot about it. I've heard it many times, but you're probably familiar with this, this term, the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic. Have you ever heard that? Any of you ever heard that? A couple of you? 
And, and so I, I did a little bit of background reading on that and come to, come to find out that that actually came out of the Reformation uh, and, uh, and John Calvin and Calvinist theology, which is very good, by the way, that, that, that said that when you work, uh, that, that work is to be, to be done, that it's to be, you're to work hard at it, you're to be disciplined, and you're to be frugal, you know. And that was part of the, the work ethic. And, and this work ethic was meant to reflect the fact that you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and by God's grace. That you work hard, you work with discipline, you work efficiently because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I said to Jonathan as he started his job, Jonathan, one of the things that you can do that will make you set apart uh, in, in our present culture in your job is to just show up. <laughs> Believe it or not, that is true. I worked full-time in a produce department for Wegmans years ago. And I was amazed at how many people just didn't show up. They're on the schedule, and last minute they call in, and I'm just not coming in today. Talk to the produce manager and say, why didn't they come in? Oh, I don't know. They just said they can't come in. Just showing up. I mean, as followers of Jesus, if you have agreed to work for your employee for, at certain hours for certain wages for certain things, it's not your place to say, well, I don't feel like coming in today. No, as a follower of Jesus, you're going to follow through. You're going to be truthful. Remember, you're going to keep your word. You, you've made an agreement there. That's part of the work ethic. And you work hard at it. I, I had another friend who, who was also full-time in produce. Uh, lo and behold, he, he kept working at produce but went to part-time and then got a job. And I'm not going to mention the plant, but he went to the plant and started working here in Erie. Uh, and he came to me and he says, he sa I said, how's it going, Jamie? And he says, he says, you'll never believe this, Joseph. He says, they're telling me I'm working too hard. Now, this is no reflection on unions, but it was a union shop. And he says, I'm making them all look bad. Now, if you knew Jamie, Jamie was a hard worker. That was just what he did. You work hard at it. But, oh, you don't do it in this context because you're making everybody else look bad. He's just doing his job. I don't care what the union rule might be. Do you, you see the distinction and the difference that ought to be true in our lives? Because we're followers of Jesus. Jesus says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as what? Unto the Lord. And not merely for men. You're not just looking over your shoulder and saying, well, is the manager here? If he's not here, I'm going to, you know, play on my Game Boy or something a little longer, you know? You know, I did go, by the way, this is no reflection on local businesses, but I did go into a major chain and I could not believe it. Employees walking around all over the store doing nothing but this. I kid you not. And I needed help. And I thought to myself, You're gonna, I need some help here. But they were all walking around looking at their phones. They weren't working. None, uh, apparently, none of them were working. Yeah. But here we're told to do something useful with our hands. And notice this. The next part he says, that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Now, we, we work to receive a wage to provide for ourselves, and that's certainly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but in what is beyond meeting our need, what God blesses us with, with uh, excess, if we want to call it that, or beyond meeting our particular need, what we have in reserve at least is to be considered or at least in part be thought of as how can maybe this be used by God to bless someone else. Now notice the text very carefully. It says that you might help those who are in what? Need. Now there are, there are legitimate needs that are out there. In the New Testament time, one of the things that was a, a very much a concern and a need were widows and orphans. People who, 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 who uh, for a woman in that culture, was pretty much left to herself, you know, and needed help, you know. And, and orphans were, were sometimes children that were abandoned that needed to be cared for in, in those particular ways, you know. Uh, so here, Paul is saying here that, that you might have something to share with those in need, you, you certainly provide for yourself, but in turn, whatever may be blessed beyond your needs being met could be an ex- can be a means and an avenue of being a blessing and a benefit to others. Now, please do not read into that, nor take this verse and use it to, to try and proclaim redistribution of wealth, because that's not what it's saying. You and I are, are to be uh, moved by the Spirit of God as God shows us a need and he will, he will direct us if we're sensitive to him, if we're to contribute to that need. Because there are some times that you stand back and you say, I really don't see that as a genuine need. And that's legitimate to be able to say no as well in those contexts also. Now, I think it's interesting if you turn to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, that the Apostle Paul modeled this. And he did so with the Ephesian church that he's writing to. Because in Ephesians, or excuse me, Acts chapter 20, he's giving his farewell to the Ephesian elders. He knew he was going to Jerusalem. He may not see these Ephesian believers or leadership ever again. And so he kind of called the, el- the leadership together and sort of reminded them of his ministry among them. And notice this, verse 32 of Acts chapter 20 Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And notice verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Paul wasn't in it for the money. Paul wasn't in it to receive the love offering. You know what I'm saying? You know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't doing it to, to, to sort of make money for himself. In fact, the, quite the opposite. He didn't accept their money. Notice what he says here. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my needs and the needs of my companions. Paul was a tent maker by trade, you know. And what did he do? He worked. He, he, was, he was a bivocational pastor. He was a bivocational missionary. He was a bivocational Christian worker. He worked for his own support. Now, I'm not saying that that should be true of everybody, but the point is this, that, that his work provided for his needs and also for others. And then notice this, this phrase, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did you know that that came in the context of you and I being called upon to do work and to work hard? 
Why? So that we can be, in turn, a blessing to others who may have a particular need. You know? So, uh, he says here uh, th- that we are to do that, uh, to, to exemplify what it means to follow uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he moves from work to words. Oh boy. Did you know that the book of Proverbs says a lot about our tongues? Did you know the book of James says that every type of animal and beast has been tamed by man, but there's one thing that humanity has a hard time taming? That's your tongue. Now, he's not talking about the tongue in your mouth. That's, a, that's kind of a, a metaphor or euphemism for, for our words, our, our conversation. You know, and notice this. Uh, he says at verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That word unwholesome uh, is the word that means something that's foul. And it was a word that was used in Paul's day to describe rotten fruit or rotting meat. Now, have you ever come across rotten fruit or rotten meat? You know how it literally almost turns your stomach? When I worked for Wegmans, there we, we, uh, we one time in the produce department, we, we, produce was the showcase of Wegmans, and uh, we had watermelons on, on cut that we, had, we put on ice, and people would buy halves and quarters and you know, whole watermelon. And there was a display of watermelons the one time, and they had these big bright lights, much brighter than this, shining down on these displays. You know, we were putting stuff out, and somebody said, somebody, one of the other workers said, does that display look funny to you? And we said, yeah, it does. Something's not right. Something doesn't look right with those whole watermelons that have been sitting up there for several days on this display, whole, uncut. And so we, we started to take apart the display, and there was one that was on the edge that looked funny, and we touched it, and the minute we touched it, it just like blew apart. And it had been, if you would, under those lights, fermenting inside. And you talk about a foul smell. It was all over our aprons, all over our pants, all over our shoes, all over the floor. And I mean, it took all you had to get through that shift without changing your clothes. Or, because it was foul. And, and you know, our language can be foul that it's putrid. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when he's describing those who, who, are, who have not yet been saved, who haven't been transformed, that the natural state of man, that he says their throat is an open grave. Now, I wonder if behind that imagery is not just that it's filled with death, but just the foulness that a grave would have. And maybe that's where the term was coined and came from where we talk about foul language. And there are certain things that that are just foul. You shouldn't use that kind of language as a follower of Jesus. He's going to talk more about that in chapter 5, so I'm not going to elaborate too much here. But I remember hearing one time, I thought I heard kind of in passing about the cussing pastor. You say, what? I said the same thing. But lo and behold, there is a pastor 
who uses some of the most off-color, the most foul language in his teaching and his motivation and his reasoning and rationale behind it is, well, that's the way the man on the street talks. I can relate to them that way. How do you deal with this passage where it says, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, no unwholesome, no foul language should come out of your mouth. I worked on a night crew right after high school in a grocery store. And the store closed at night, so the, 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 there was nobody else in the store. And there was one man, young man here, a couple of years older than I was at the time. I was probably 18. And I was a new believer. And I tell you, every other word out of his mouth was a foul word. And he used to purposely come up to me and, and lay it on the line because he knew I was a Christian. And I just, I didn't, you know. Then you had the other opposite thing when I was in high school, which was kind of almost humorous, that, that I would go to homeroom class and I'd walk in and I carried my little New Testament with me. I was a new Christian. And, and I can remember all the kids chattering outside the homeroom door. And I remember one kid that was kind of vocal says, uh-oh, everybody watch your language. Here come the preacher. And I thought to myself now, looking back on that, well, don't you realize that God hears you all the time? It doesn't matter whether I'm present there or not, you know. But see, as followers of Jesus, it says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But notice, by way of contrast, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know, one of the ways that we can help to allow the Spirit of God to help us is that when we're conversing with people, to, to stop before we, we speak, you know, and some people have the, have the capacity of just talking nonstop. You can't, you can't, you, you just, you can't get a word in edgewise. There was a woman at, at, at our church in Tyanesta, lovely woman, godly woman, and, and, and she was retired age, and she and Marnie would, would kind of do things together. And one time, you know, she was that way, that she could talk a mile a minute and for hours without a breath about everything. You know, and I can remember one time Marnie on the phone going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, she, and literally it got to be 11 o'clock at night and Marnie's in bed with the phone up to her ear. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And finally she, she was able to cut it to an end and, and shut it off. And I said, what was she talking about for so long? Oh, just this and that and everything, you know. But my point is this, that, that, that when we are conversing with one another, sometimes maybe we need to pause before we say what, wants, what we want to come out of our mouth to say, is what I'm about to say going to help this person or hurt them? Is it going to build them up in Jesus Christ or is it going to tear them down? Now, remember, we, we can't just say, speak the truth in love and I'm going to be blunt and it's going to hurt you. No, speaking the truth in love means that we use sort of a governing thing. And sometimes we need to, as the psalmist said, and as David said, put a guard over my mouth. Because we are to speak things that build people up. And wouldn't you rather receive an encouraging word than to hear somebody go on a foul tirade? You know, you walk away from those, those ones that are, that are foul and you just kind of, oh, that was, that was awful. But somebody gives you, a, uh, as it says in Proverbs, let me have my verse here, uh, Proverbs 15, 23, or, uh, a man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. 
or Proverbs 25:11, a word aptly spoken or meaning spoken at the right time is like apples of gold in setting of, settings of silver. It's precious. Uh, it's priceless. You've probably said this when you've walked away from some conversations where a believer has encouraged you or helped you. You said exactly what I needed to hear. That's exactly what I needed to hear. You know? And sometimes what we need to hear isn't always things that we want to readily receive. You know? So it's not just a matter of you as a believer speaking a timely word and, and, a, and, a, and a spirit-led word to someone in their lives, but also be willing to receive it. When I was working for, for Wegmans, and this is, sort of ties in with a lot of these things this morning, uh, I, I had left the pastorate, and I was working full-time in a grocery store, and I kind of went through a, a spiritual depression because I wasn't in the pastorate, and I just thought, I, I gave up being a pastor in a church to work in a produce department. I went from being a preacher to a fruit inspector, you know. You know but God used that. There was a, there was a purpose in it. I, I, I look back on that. But I remember one time I was kind of going through kind of a depressed thing. And uh, I, after my shift, I went home and I just, I just went and laid in bed. And I didn't feel like doing anything. And any time that people asked us to do stuff, it's like, I don't, I'm not interested. I remember one of my friends called me on the phone and basically laid it online and said, you get out of that bed. You stop this. Stop having a pity party for yourself. You're, you're, you're a believer. What, what are you doing? You know? and, and he kind of laid it on the line, at least for me. And that was enough to at least sort of spur me on to start seeking God once again. Um, when we get into the thing about work, I'll share some experiences from, from Wegmans that kind of illustrate some of these other things about work and so on and things that God had showed me during that time. But anyway, so we're, we're to speak a word into someone's life but also be willing uh, to receive it uh, on the other end as well. Well, I thought we would get much further than this in these verses. And again, I am not attempting to draw these things out, but hopefully in the illustrations that I have shared this morning, and while they have come out of my own experience and life, uh, you know, you can relate to some of those things and sort of fill in your own things and say, yeah, that's true of me as well. Um, but you know, uh, Paul goes on to say here that um, we as believers are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. See, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, verse, uh, as it's uh, said in Scripture. And, and when, we, when we refuse to do what God says, that word grieve means to hurt or to pain. We, don't, we probably don't use this, but it, you know, people, have said, people sometimes use the expression, it grieves me to have to do this or say this. It hurts. And interestingly, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You can only grieve a person. You can't grieve an essence. The Holy Spirit is a person. You know, the Holy Spirit can uh, be uh, resisted, Acts 7.51. He can be lied to, Acts 5.3. He can be insulted, Hebrews 10.29. He can be quenched, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. That's the negative, but the positive is John 20, 22, he can be received. And you and I can be filled with the Spirit, as we're going to see in Ephesians 5.18. And when you and I refuse to do what God says or say no to God or, or fail to, to listen to Him, Calvin put it this way, when we do not follow His guidance and obey the Word, we grieve the Holy Spirit. 
He also said, when we pollute ourselves by following our own sinful desires, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, which, which is a reminder that, that we're in a relationship with God in all these contexts. And notice this. He says, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. You're sealed. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, God put a seal upon you that, that shows his mark of ownership and protection and that you're his own. And in this context, Paul says you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit by disobedience in our lives, but that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit leaves, nor that that seal is broken. However, this is what happens in the Christian life and in our relationship with God. Sin, our disobedience, our stubbornness, our rebellion, which grieves the Spirit, breaks our fellowship with God. You and I don't take a whole lot of comfort in knowing that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit when, we're no, when we, we are knowingly living disobediently to the Lord. It's of little comfort to us to know that we're sealed, even though it's true, which means that even though we do fail and we do fall short, God's seal of his Spirit upon us is the guarantee, the assurance that what God begins, he's going to absolutely finish in your life. That ought to encourage your hearts. What God begins, he finishes in our lives. Now, lastly, and we'll conclude this, um, he just says, in addition to that, the day of redemption, by the way, is the day in which God sets everything right. We're glorified, we're restored, everything is set back to the way it should be through Jesus Christ. Now, he says here, verses 31 and 32, and this is just going to be very brief, he says, get rid of all bitterness. Bitterness is is settled hostility, or if you would, resentment. I think it was Stott who said it's the sour spirit in a person's life. My brother and I used to have a term for certain people that sort of exemplified this. They're kind of a sour ball. They're just a sour ball. <laughs> you know what I mean, don't you? You know what I'm talking about. I'm not to explain. He says, get rid of rage. Rage is explosive anger. We're, we're, you know, it's, it's, like a, it's like a match to, to, to dried straw. <laughs> Just blow up. And we say, he blew up at me. She blew up at me. Get rid of that. Get rid of anger. And you say, wait a minute. Didn't he just say earlier, you can be angry but not sin? Well, here's the starting point of all this. And so maybe Paul is suggesting when he says get rid of all anger that maybe you and I get to a place where God by his Holy Spirit so mellows us, so works on our personality, so works on those little things that irritate us and cause us to react, that you know what? It just doesn't bother me anymore. God mellows us by his Spirit so that we're no longer angry people that comes to us naturally. He says also get rid of brawling. Another word that's used in this context and, and sometimes in some translations is clamor. You know, we use the phrase, well, they're clamoring for attention. <laughs> you know, it's that constant, you know, uh, clamor means the idea of raised voices. One, one commentator, I think it was uh, Barclay, uh, studied the example of, of a, uh, a pastor's wife who said to his, his, her preaching pastor husband, stop shouting at the people. Stop raising your voice. You know? I'm not shouting! <laughs> I've said that myself to my shame. So, you know. But brawling, raised voices. The, the, the answer is not when you're in that context and the human response is shout louder. 
Maybe it's just bite your tongue and say nothing. And ask the Spirit of God to help you. And then slander, which is evil speaking or fighting words. Uh, And then he says, get rid of every form of malice, which is evil. Malice is evil. And, And John Stott says that would be those who would wish evil on someone else and who would actually plot evil on someone else. And you know, forgive me for saying this, But as I read through this, I thought to myself, with these things that Paul says that believers are to get rid of, I thought to myself, in the political climate that we're in, if our politicians took this to heart and lived this out, they would have nothing to say. But the same would be true in our lives as well. For some of us, we would have nothing to say. If we, if we really allow the Spirit of God to make this real in us. But not just remove these negative things. Replace these with, the, the, with this. Be kind to one another. Now, you've probably seen the, the placard on billboards and on bumper stickers, random acts of kindness. There's nothing wrong with being kind, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't just do it randomly for the sake of, I'm just going to be kind. You have a motivation. Christ himself the motivation and the ability to be kind to, to people and how our culture needs a good shot of kindness, you know, that to, be, to be exhibited by the people of God, kindness. And then be compassionate with one another. That means tenderhearted. That means to have mercy. That means to feel sympathy to the point that you are moved to some type of action to help those who are truly in need. You have compassion for someone else. Why? Because you're a follower of Jesus. In fact, he says we're to be forgiving of each other. The word forgiveness means to lift a debt. When someone does something wrong and offends you, they are indebted to you in the sense that you hold that against them. Forgiveness says, I lift that from you. I don't hold that against you any longer. Uh, Sin incurs a debt, but those debts are to be lifted. They're to be forgiven. And, And Paul says here, how are we to forgive? You talk about the highest standard just as in Christ, God forgave you. You say, that's not possible humanly. Humanly, it's not possible. But supernaturally, by the Spirit of God, it is. You and I are able to forgive by the power of God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And God's forgiveness in Christ is complete, and only God can make this real within us. So, as you look at yourself and as I look at myself in light of these 21 commands, how much are we like our Lord Jesus Christ in these ways? How much more does God still have to do by his spirit within each of us to make us more like his son? Our prayer again should be, oh God, make this real in me, make this real in us as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ in these days. Shall we pray? Our Father, thank you for this shared time together in your word. We kind of say that this part of this letter is the the practical uh, portion that Paul wrote. It's what the the, the, the gospel looks like in, in daily life when we live out the truth and the reality of Christ within us. Lord, may each of us 
be filled afresh with your spirit. Daily, Lord, even moment by moment, so that we, O Lord, can reflect these commands by obedience, by putting them into practice. And we know, Lord, that it's only possible by your enablement, so we ask for your help to do it. And we pray, Lord, that in each of our lives, you would bring us further along in this walk with you and in this work of making us like Jesus so that we, in greater measure in these days, will continually reflect these things to those around us in every relationship that we have. And we pray the result would be that the light of Jesus might shine through us, that you would be glorified. Father, would you make this so within each of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.